The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Morning, everyone. Amen. Praise God for you. Thanks for fighting the rain to get here. That was kind of a bummer, wasn't it? Let me see what I'm working with, though. How many in here would rather it be rain than snow at this point, all things considered? Let me see your hands. Okay. All right. All right. Now, let me see if you're snow. You'd rather it be snow than rain. Let me see your hands. Okay. I can tell who had to shovel snow and who didn't over the last several weeks. Praise the Lord. Uh, Yeah, I mean, at least the rain runs off into the sewer most of the time, right? (laughs) But uh, I know that added an extra layer of complication in getting here this morning and it made my hair a mess, and so I had to fight through to get here too, but I appreciate you doing it, and uh, thankful to be here uh, worshiping with all of you. Also, uh, welcome to everyone joining through live stream. We praise God for you, and uh, I'm looking forward to studying God's Word with, with all of you today. So uh, if you would, please turn to uh, Mark 14. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 26. We're continuing our march through the book of Mark, uh, we've called this series Servant King. Uh, It's all about Jesus. We've gotten into this book over these last months uh, to really resharpen our focus on who the real Jesus is. It's pretty important uh, all the time, and and maybe even in particular in the time we find ourselves. So uh, we're going to keep doing that. Uh, One other thing that caught my attention in in regards to it raining this morning, uh, I'm not sure, and this will all tie together here, but uh, I'm not sure how many of you know uh, the Higginbothams. So that's Andrew and Katie and their son, Lewis. So since we've met here in this space in July, uh, and part of why this matters, Andrew and Katie are key leaders here at Love City Church. And since we've been in this space, uh, every time I come around the corner of Maple and pull up here, I see their car parked all the way down at the end of the street and around the corner. And they do that to leave space for everyone else in the closer spots. And uh, today, you know, there's maybe less folks here as a result of the rain. Folks are still, you know, dealing with COVID and all of that. And there's, there's plenty of spaces up closer, and yet they choose to park far away. And I think it just says a lot about their character. I wanted to point it out because I think being a servant-hearted person, if you're a follower of Jesus, is the right move. Amen? And they're going to be really annoyed that I said that. And, you know, they'll give me a hard time about it, but I don't care. I want them to be honored. And uh, also... Keep in mind, I'm not sure, hopefully everyone knows this, if you don't, uh, Brother Andrew leads for us a, a pre-service Bible study. Uh, it's taken us through the Gospel Project curriculum, it's called the Story of Scripture, that happens in the living room before service. If you're interested in getting involved in that, we're also recording them, right, because we, we can't provide child care for that yet, so a lot of folks maybe can't make it in person, but we've got that on our YouTube channel. I think it's even under a separate tab, nice and organized for you. But uh, check that out, because it's taking you through the story of Scripture and helping us to see that crimson thread of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. And so, and anytime I get a chance to hear uh, Brother Andrew unpack, you know, maybe even more than what the curriculum is, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, because that brother has probably forgot more about the Bible than I know. So, amen. All right, so, um, did you find Mark 14? Did you guys get there? Let's... let's uh, Get to work. So today we're going to read about, and we're going to study, two of the most important meals in the history of mankind, okay? And 
knowing that I'm dealing here with a group of Bible scholars, people that really are excited about the word, I'll bet you guys can guess who was present at both of these meals. I'll give you a couple clues, just to be helpful. Uh, his name starts with a J, and he never has to wear a life jacket. <laughs> who do you think it was? Go ahead, out loud. This one should be safe. Jesus was there, man, at both of these meals. Amen? That's part of why they're two of the most important meals in mankind's history, okay? Uh, the first meal was held in the town of Bethany. That's on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem being on the west. And this was at the home of a man named Simon. The second meal was held in a borrowed room in Jerusalem because, for at least one reason, the, the Passover lamb sacrificed at the temple had to be eaten within the city limits by law. Okay? And we're in Passover time as we read these verses. I, I think it's also worth mentioning uh, that John, the book of John, places the first meal we're going to read before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, while Matthew and Mark put it back-to-back with the Passover meal. And, and many tend to think that John's account is, is more accurate chronologically, but what we need to remember about that is the highest concern of the gospel writers was not exact chronology, okay? That was not their main point. Their main point was getting the life and message of Jesus accurately depicted. And I think it's possible, and there's others that think this, this isn't my idea, but it's possible to help us see the point of what's going on here that Matthew and Mark wanted to highlight the contrast between Mary's devotion and the deception of Judas, is why they were put closer together, okay? And I'm saying Mary, her name's not going to be mentioned here in Mark, but John tells us that this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus who was raised from the dead who their other sibling is Martha, okay? So some of that will ring a bell for some of you. Okay, so let's, let's read Mark's account uh, of these events together, and, and we're going to see what the Lord wants to teach us today through his, his word. So Mark 14, 1 through 26, here we go. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him, for they were saying, not during the festival, Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city 
And a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out, came to the city, and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They begin to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. While they were eating, he took some bread. And after blessing, he broke it. And he gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn... They went out to the Mount of Olives. Praise God for his word. Amen. Amen, amen. All right, back to 1 and 2, and let's work through this together. So verse 1 and 2, Mark is giving us some key info here to understand the dynamics at play as all of this unfolds, okay? So if you remember in our journey thus far, we just came out of some sets of verses where you had the the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, religious leaders of different ilk, they kept coming, trying to trip Jesus up, kept coming, trying to discredit him in various ways in front of the people. All of their attempts to discredit Jesus had failed, okay? None of them worked. He ended up always turning it back on their head or asking some question that just shut them up, okay? And, and so now where we see is they're like, well, we're not going to be able to discredit them. We're going to kill him. Okay, so it's, it's becoming more clear what their uh, plan is. And, and what we see here, they're saying they want to do it by stealth, okay? So they're not afraid to murder the Son of God, but they're afraid of what the people may do to them because Jesus is still popular. Jesus still is thought of as at least a prophet, at least a miracle worker. Maybe not Messiah by large parts of the crowd, but not somebody that they would want to see killed, okay? Uh, and at this point, without the help of Judas which they didn't know they had yet in verses 1 and 2, they don't think they should do this at the festival, okay? Because there's tons of people around, and, and you know we saw that in the temple. There's, there's lots of witnesses, right? So there's no chance for them to grab Jesus and haul him off and kill him uh, without them stirring up the crowds against them. So they've decided we're going to wait till after the festival, okay? Now, something else important for us to understand is that Passover, okay, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were both celebrations of the exodus from Egypt, okay? What does that mean? And this, it's important for us to remember that at one point here, the religious leaders had decided we can't, we can't kill him during the festival, but God had a different plan, and there's a reason for that, okay? The whole Passover situation and unleavened bread deal, the unleavened bread, the festival of unleavened bread, that was a remembrance of the fact that as the Israelites had to get up and kind of run out of Egypt, they didn't have time to bake their bread. Okay, so that's a commemoration of that time in that way. And the Passover, okay, this was a specific meal eaten with certain elements, and, and all of it was meant to call to their remembrance the time in Egypt where the plagues kept coming, Pharaoh would decide to let him go, then harden his heart again, and then at the end came the, the last plague, the plague of 
the, the death angel coming through and taking the, the firstborn out of homes that did not have the blood of a sacrificed lamb over their doorpost, okay? So that death angel passed over the homes that had the blood of a lamb, okay, on their doorpost. And this is a major event uh, for sure in the history of the people of Israel. I would submit to you it's also a major event for us just as people of faith, right? And you may think, well, is that cultural appropriation? I, I don't think so. Because Paul himself in Galatians, who called himself the Hebrew of Hebrews, right, had no problem saying that there's no longer, in, in terms of who gets to be in the family of God, and thus that means who this history belongs to, he said there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free. We're, we're all, we've been made one family in Christ. I hope you're excited about that today, because that's a pretty big deal. Amen? So this is your history, as much as it is the history of anybody who was ethnically Hebrew. Amen? Uh, because we've been brought into God's family by faith. And, and we're going to see, as we work through this, God intended for Jesus to fulfill his ultimate redemptive act on the anniversary of the Passover, which is very fitting for multiple reasons. And, and I think it's, hopefully it's an encouragement to you for us to, to look at this and see that even with all the human elements at play, okay, the you got Judas, you got the religious leaders and, and what they're thinking about the whole thing. No matter what, with all that human kind of minutia in the mix, God's will would be accomplished in the matter, no matter what. Okay? Jesus does die during the Passover celebration. That's what God wanted. And, and it's interesting to think, okay, the Passover would have been... There's... Estimates between 1500 to 1200 BC. Okay, it's a long time ago, so it's hard, right? And, and the Bible doesn't say in the year of this happened. So between 1500 and 1200 BC is when uh, the Exodus would have happened, okay? And so God is maintaining, by the strength of his might and the fortitude of his will, the events moving from there all the way down to this finite point where Jesus dies on the day that God wants him to even with all the other factors in that. And, and you might be thinking, okay, whatever, dude, 1500, 1200 BC, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just, just for a reference point, if we went back 12 to 1500 years from today, you're in the dark ages. Okay? That's a, law, that's a big chunk of history, isn't it? It's a lot of time with a lot of variables to be managed to end up this thing coming down to a point where... Not just does what God wants to happen with Jesus happen, it happens when and exactly when he says so. Amen. It's a big God you serve. That's all I'm trying to tell you. Uh, and, and I hope that's encouraging to you because we're all dealing with variables in our life today, aren't we? We're all dealing with stuff that would cause us to potentially feel anxious, worried, concerned. I, I just want to say to you, God's got it. He can handle it. He knows what's up. Amen. Okay, so verses 3 through 9, we're going to read 3 through 9 again before we unpack it, word for word, because I told you these two meals are important meals in, in history, but this individual situation right here with Mary and, and this perfume, it is one of the most significant events, events, period, in history, according to Jesus, and I don't know about you, I'm just going to go with it. Jesus is qualified to determine if something's one of the most significant events in history, right? You cool with that? 
Amen. If anybody can, he can. <laughs> I'm going with him. All right, so let's just, let's, I'm going to read this carefully and slowly because Jesus said this is real important. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. Now, this says they. John lets us know specifically it was Judas that piped up with this little math figure here, okay? And they were, and, and, but Judas didn't stay alone in this, okay? Others joined in and they, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. This points to the significance. See, some would look at this verse and be like, oh, well, is Jesus downplaying the importance of ministering to the poor? Of course not, okay? Jesus was, made, make no mistake how clear Jesus was that his followers should care for the poor as a part of following him. Was, did, he, did he make that clear or not? He made it very clear. But that should point you to, uh, with Jesus emphasizing caring for the poor the way he does in the rest of his teachings, what a big deal that is, then for for this to be put out as the reason why they're concerned, and, and, and the motives probably aren't pure here anyways about it just being concerned for the poor, and this, this waste in their thought process, it, it's, it's, not just, it's not just that contrast between what Jesus says about caring for the poor and then what he says was the right thing to do here should key us in in yet another way to how important this is and how right this is, what Mary's done, okay? Verse Eight, she has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. So, you know, throughout this thus far, we've seen a lot of times where the brothers, the, the disciples, would be arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. And they, they normally got a, a verbal smack from from the master about it. Here, Jesus says, what this woman has done in this moment, it's going to echo down throughout history. This matters big time. Okay? Now, I think what this also helps us, if, if we look at verse 6 again, I think it can help us with something that, it's, it's a common accusation against the scriptures, against Jesus, uh, and against maybe those of us who follow those things, okay? Um, verse 6, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. And then what he goes on to say again in verse 9 about how this will be remembered. There are, there are many who, they mistaken, some, I think some do this on purpose. Maybe they know the Bible isn't um, what they accuse it of being, and, and it's just a, a leverage point because they're angry or whatever it is, but there are some that genuinely don't understand how the Bible presents God and his, and his views of women and how they should be thought about, treated, respected, that they are equal in value and worth and dignity as image bearers of God. We go all the way back to the garden and we see that let us make, let us make man and woman in our image, 
right? This is, a, this is a council between the Trinitarian Godhead. Let's make men and women in our image. And there's an element in which it, it takes men and women to round out a depiction through humanity of the image of God. The Bible, and my point is here, and I think this is one place maybe we could, if, if people are, are concerned about this or they've heard this, or maybe there's people staying away from Jesus because they think the Bible is, is a tool for holding women down or disrespecting women, this would be one of the dozens of places that I, off the top of my head that I would think, well, maybe we should go look at Mark 14 and let's see how Jesus talks about women, or this woman in particular, because the fact that basically he tells the guys, shut your mouth, okay, uh, and, and lifts her up in her example for all of us throughout time that are going to be followers of Jesus, in, in the culture of that day, highly patriarchal, that this was way more scandalous than maybe it would even seem today, okay? This, so Jesus just didn't give a rip about that, is what I'm trying to say to you, Okay. And this is another example of how Jesus is not about subjugating women under, under the heel of men, okay? That's not what the Bible teaches. Um, does the Bible teach that we have functions and roles and purposes that God has placed in us between uh, men and women? Yes, absolutely. And that is also a part of his divine plan. Uh, I think sometimes we have, we have norms that we create that we try to put on people and then, and then try to use the Bible to... to you know, reinforce that, that's not a helpful practice, but we should look to the scriptures for how we sort all these things. Amen? Amen. Okay. I mean, do you, <laughs> I don't know how, do you, I don't, I don't know if I can be as, as harsh as Jesus was here with the response to these guys going, well, I can't believe you wasted that perfume by pouring it on the head of Jesus. Wasted it? What are you talking about, man? I mean, Jesus, Jesus. if I was to just translate this into modern vernacular, he, he almost to those guys said, listen, you simps, shut your traps because what she has done shows that she gets it. And you don't. I've been telling you I'm going to die. I've been telling you what's going to happen. And she seems to be the only one in the room that gets it. Shut your trap. Charles Spurgeon, I was reading some of what he said about this. He made a really interesting observation about Judas here. Spurgeon talked like he was thankful <laughs> for the greed and the foolishness that led Judas to calculate the cost of this perfume and to say it out loud as a part of his, uh, you know, his argumentation or his, you know, the fact that he was voicing that this, that this looked like a problem to him. Because if he hadn't done that, we may have not caught the depth of this generous and sacrificial act of worship, okay? 300 denarii, and he said maybe a little more. We could have sold this for a little more than 300 denarii. That was basically a year's wages for a common laborer because a denarii was basically a denarii. was basically a day's wages, right? So if you back out days that you don't work, a little bit more than 300, we're talking about basically a year's wages, Okay? And if that didn't hit you right yet, the average income in the U.S. today annually is about $50,000. Okay? So you hear 300 denarii, you're like, okay, yeah. 50 grand. Okay? So are we getting a little clearer picture of what's happening here in the context? Mary rolls up 
with a bottle of perfume. And you might be saying, how could a little bottle of, that doesn't seem right, how could that be worth so much? Well, oftentimes, spices and perfumes, things of that nature, in that time, if they were very hard to get, they would be very valuable. This in particular, this alabaster vial, it says she broke it. That's because it didn't have a lid that you could take off and do a little bit. Okay, Once you broke it and opened it, that was it. So you only got one shot at it. And it was more used as a, a, a large store of value than it was really to, to do what she did with it. And it's something that was small, easy to carry. This was probably something around the size of a soda can in terms of content and, uh, or a pop can, okay? Don't email me. Whatever you want to call it. Uh, that, that's about how much it was, okay? And it was extremely valuable. And she broke that vial and she poured it all. And there's something, you know, you know I'm a fan of the NASB, but there's, there's something I need to point out here. Some of your translations, if you have a different one, may say this different. When Jesus says she has done a good deed to me, a good deed to me, there's two Greek words for good that could fit here. One is just kind of plain, like vanilla, moral good. That's, but that's not this word. The other word for good in the Greek here, it, it has a connotation of a, like a beautiful good, something that's it's precious and beautiful. And, and if, you, if you have another translation other than NASB where NASB says good, it may say beautiful there. And that's really... That's a a good way to capture the essence of what Jesus is saying here. This wasn't just a morally good thing. This was a beautiful thing that she did. Precious. Great, deep meaning that will echo through history according to the master. Okay? Part of that has to do with the value of the thing, what it represents about what was going on in her heart to do that. Okay? It's a big deal. And so the question is, what, what should this mean to us today? And I, I believe, at least in part, what it means is it should cause us to rethink what is appropriate in terms of our devotion and our zeal for Christ. For many today, I would say it, there, there's, there's a lot of folks that it seems like this is the way they operate, that only, only stoic reasoned and, and maybe what we would call balanced expressions of worship for Jesus are of value. That anything that creeps into this extravagant kind of radical, this, and that's what I'm trying to say to you, right? Somebody, somebody comes in and takes $50,000 worth of whatever it is, this perfume, this oil, and they, and they pour it out on Jesus' head, okay? This is an extravagant, out-of-the-box extraordinary act of worship, okay? Driven by a great deal of passion and zeal for the Lord. So what is, how is this hitting us today? I, I had an exchange with, and it wasn't um, unkind, it was, it was very civil, but I had an exchange with somebody on Twitter, and I'm not even sure who this guy is, I'm not sure if he's blue checkmark, but on like Christian Twitter, he, you know, the name comes up a lot, so I don't know. But he was talking about, there was this girl in his youth group, you know, and, and this is, I'm just talking about kind of this, this, this attitude of, of how we think about, how, I'm challenging how we may think of somebody like Mary today and how she acted, 
okay? So this guy's talking about, back in his youth group, there was, there was some girl that would always, if, you, if somebody was to say something was awesome, you know, which, <laughs> that's, you know, that's another one of those words, but anyways, if, so if, if anybody would say around her something was awesome, she would pipe up and say, only God is awesome, okay? And I understand that can be done in kind of a pharisaical, you know, annoying spirit, and that, that is maybe how some people do it, but... Um, also, I think maybe caring about having words to describe God that belong to him alone, that's maybe worthy of consideration. Okay, so I, I just, I kind of humbly suggested that, and, and the guy's response, I couldn't really tell if he was giving any credence to what I said, he just kind of cracked another joke, which is kind of my point about some of what it feels like happens in Christian culture around these ideas, that it's, there's almost a premium on being, being one of the cool Christians. It's not too out there, too radical, too, you know, maybe too emotional about Jesus and about what it means to serve him, what, what a, a zealous kind of Christ is my first love approach to this thing looks like. And it's like a lot of people, you know, they would step back and, and a person like that, a person like Mary coming and doing what she did or somebody that pipes up and, and, and says something in a crowd, not concerned about whether or not they're going to be looked at as overly zealous for the Lord. How we treat someone like that. And then where should we stand in those kind of situations? I think, I think what we see Mary doing today should cause us to ask a simple question. Is Jesus still your first love? I think we should also ask, has he ever been? Because what I'm seeing here with Mary is this reality. Nothing short of Jesus being our first love is appropriate. Nothing short. And hear me say this. I'm not trying to heap condemnation on anybody around this idea. Jesus reprimanded the disciples here for their callousness towards Mary, but he reprimanded them, but he didn't cast them away. Okay? That's important. So if you're sitting here and this is hitting you like I'm hoping it's hitting you, don't let the devil take the good conviction the Holy Spirit may be dealing with you in your heart right now and take that into the place of condemnation. When I say that nothing but Jesus being our first love is appropriate, I'm talking about where we at least set the bar. Okay? Where we're hoping to get. And, when, and if some of us are looking at Mary's devotion here, Mary's extreme seeming passion for Jesus, and some of us are thinking, I don't, even, I don't even know how to get there. Well, I'm just glad that you're asking that question. I just, I'm just submitting to you, then take that question to the Lord and ask him to continue to reveal to you his wonder and his majesty and his beauty so that we continue to move along in this process of our lesser loves falling to the wayside and our first love being this good master, this holy king, this servant savior. Because that, nothing less than him being our first love, nothing less than us being overcome with zealous passion that many would see as too much or extreme, nothing less than that is appropriate. Amen.
I'm just saying, let's at least set the bar correctly. Let's not settle for being, being the cool ones, looking down on others that maybe are more emotional or zealous in their expressions of worship towards Christ. Okay? Because there's two groups of people in the room today at this meal. You got Mary and Jesus, which I'm going to say that's the right side to stand on. And then you got everyone else in the room that was like, <laughs> right? Where, where are we going to stand? Who are we going to stand with? Many commentators think this perfume may have represented Mary's life savings. Uh, there's many that say it, it could have been an heirloom passed down through generations because of the, the incredible value of this and because of what economics looked like in that time. It's, it's safe to assume probably one or the other of those is true. All right? And so what I'm asking you to think about today is how would you respond if someone here gave something like that? What would you think about it? Would you, would you let that affect you maybe the way that it should? Or would you be quick to say, oh, well, they're, they're, they're not using wisdom. How many of us would look at a sacrificial act of worship like Mary's and jump straight to because we're not going to do that? Oh, well, that, that doesn't look very wise. Does that seem to be the right approach based on how Jesus talked about this interaction? No, it doesn't. That's right. Thank you. I realize this is heavy and you're probably scared to talk right now. He's like, what's he going to say next? He's going hard. I, look, I'm not going, I, I'm trying, I could go a lot harder based on what's said here. I'm trying to be gentle and round this thing out because I don't want anybody in condemnation over it. That's not the point. Don't, hear me, don't leave here condemned about this. For sure leave here convicted though. Seeking for Christ's wisdom on what needs to happen on the inside of us that we would stand closer to where Mary stands than where Judas and the boys stand in this interaction, Okay. Um, how would you respond if the Lord was impressing upon your heart this kind of extravagant, passionate, maybe to many, nonsensical worship? What would your response be? I, I, I'm concerned today that many of us would stand with Judas in this scenario. We'd see Mary's unhindered passion and singular devotion as over the top. Or we'd accuse her of doing too much, or we might use words like Jesus juke to describe her actions. Now, let me say again, I realize there are those who, in, in a self-righteous way, they, they do take every conversation and try to hyper-spiritualize it. I do understand that that's a real thing, okay? I do understand that maybe Jesus jukes do actually exist, but what I'm saying is, it's very easy for us to throw anything that looks more passionate or maybe a little less in control than what we would do into that bucket. Or a little more emotional than maybe I would be. Whoa, whoa, that's... You're doing a little much there, aren't you? Well, maybe not. Maybe that's a heart that's actually set aflame with passion for Christ. And maybe you should ask that person to pray for you. That the same would happen in you. Amen. I left that spot there and one person got it. Thank you, my friend. 
It's easy to stand in self-righteous indignation and justify ourselves by being a wet blanket on the passion of others. But let's remember our master's words when these guys took that approach with Mary. What do you say? You better leave her alone. What she's done is beautiful. It's beautiful. Amen. Mary worshipped Jesus, which led her to sacrifice worldly wealth and disregard the scorn of those who saw her as too radical. Judas worshipped himself, which led him to focus on worldly wealth and trying to align himself with those who he thought had power. Okay? And, and, and we see, it's interesting, that it's after this interaction that Mark records Judas' pivot to go to talk to the religious leaders. It's almost as if part of the motivation, you know, part of the motivation for what Judas did, uh, John says he was a thief. John, John just gets more down into it, right? He said, Judas was a thief. Judas used to carry the money box and would help himself to what was in there. Okay, so everyone, everyone else was more careful about it. I don't know. John just felt like he could go in hard on him. So, but, so we know that that's part of the motivation. There's a greed thing there, right? But, but it's also interesting here. It's almost like when, when, this, when this year's worth of wages is, is wasted upon the head of Jesus, what it seems to communicate to Judas is, is it's almost like the, the bell finally rung on what God's kingdom, what Christ's kingdom is really going to look like here. That the typical practicality that you would apply to po, you know, political kingdoms and, man, we could, we could have used that money for the poor or we could have used that money to, to help, help fund the resistance, right? Which is part of what Judas was probably hoping the kingdom would be. There's those that theorize about Judas's motives that, and it's almost like trying to get him off the hook some, that Judas, by betraying Jesus, he wanted to push Jesus into some kind of display of messianic power, right? Like that in the garden, instead of it going like it, go, it went, that Jesus would just all of a sudden, you know, flex out, you know, his, his toga rips and he like dual wields some swords and just takes, you know, it's like, it, now it's time, right? Like, but that, I, I don't know, that doesn't seem to me to really be in Judas's mind because Judas runs, when he, when he finds out Jesus isn't going to do power structure stuff the way that Judas was hoping, where does he go? He goes to the other people that are doing power structure stuff the way he was hoping they would. He goes to the religious leaders, right? Because we've talked about multiple times through Mark that Jesus refuse, refuses to force people to do stuff through fear. He compels through love. He's coming to set up a kingdom that's inside out and upside down of what humans have ever done. But that's, a, that's very hard to comprehend, isn't it? <laughs> it's very hard to comprehend a king that would tell Peter, put your sword back in the sheath when he pulls it out to fight when they come to arrest him. I can relate to Peter in that. I don't know if you can. I would be very frustrated because I'd have, you know, that's, that would, that's what would have probably made sense to me. Let's rumble, right? And Jesus is like, nope, we're not doing it that way. Put that away. The cup my father's given me, I got to drink it. Mm. That's, not even, whew, that's not in the notes. Y'all quit pulling on that now. We got to get through this. Mm-mm-mm. <clears throat> All right, let's go to, let's go to verses 10 and 11. We, we got to get out of there. There's more. There's more gold in there, but... <clears throat> 
We're going to keep moving. Okay. 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at the opportune time. I, I, I want... So there's this... Mary does what she does. The boys start running their mouth. Jesus responds, right, with a, I would say, a strong reprimand, okay? And what I want you to see here is now that I've brought this same challenge, Mary's actions brought a challenge into that room that day. I'm bringing that same challenge forward into this room today, okay? The Bible talks of this, about this like a meal, Right, That when we come together to study God's word, part of what we're doing is we're feasting upon this. Right, So as much as a, as a shepherd or a pastor, I'm a chef. So how's the food tasting today? That's what I want to know. Is it all right? A little bitter today? You know, some people like that. All right. It's like real dark chocolate. It's good for me, but it's got a bite. Amen. All right. I'm bringing that same challenge forward today. So what that means is you've got the same choice that all those at that meal had. You can either let your heart be softened or hardened. As we let the challenge of Mary's actions come forth into today and, and, and trouble our own hearts in a good way. Judas's heart was hardened as a result of the rebuke. Mary's action, Christ's response to it, Judas decided he was going to double down. Please don't do that today. Don't go that way. As I said before, we can't be sure of all of Judas's motives. Clearly there was greed. Some of it was probably just the burn of being kind of smacked back by the master here. But there's an element in which it doesn't seem, according to what John unpacks, this wasn't just a result of this interaction. This thing was already working in Judas's heart. And why did it matter? You may be wondering, the chief priests already wanted to kill Jesus, right? So what, why does it matter whether Judas betrayed him or not? What, 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 what effect does that really have here? And, and here's what we got to remember. The chief priests and the, and the scribes and, and uh, everybody that was involved in wanting to kill Jesus, they had decided, we can't do it right now because there's just too much action. There's too many people around. These crowds are too... Um, enamored with Jesus. And so they, they had basically been like, well, we're, we're, not, we're not getting it done this week. We'll have to look at after the fact how we can get somewhere privately, back him in a corner somewhere, find him in an alley or whatever, you know what I mean, or rush in on him somewhere. So what, the reason why Judas betraying him is significant is because what Judas was providing to them was, was a detailed accounting of where Jesus was going to be. Judas was able to run and tell them he's alone right now in the garden. It's just him and his guys. There's nobody else there that you're scared of a revolt. There's nobody else there watching what's going on. Now's the time to go get him. That's why it mattered. Judas helped them to avoid the crowds. That's why they were excited when Judas came and they offered him money. This is good info. This means we can get this done. This means we can avoid the crowds, okay? Just want to make sure you kind of understand how all that plays together. All right, verses 12 through 16. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
He sent two of the disciples and said to them, Go into the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. That's also interesting. At that point, that's why the guy would have stood out. You might be like, well, it could be a lot of guys carrying pitchers of water. Not really, because normally uh, it, was, it was only women who carried pitchers of water. This would have been a culturally odd uh, thing for them to see. But that's what Jesus uses as the... Uh, <clears throat> here's how you know it's the guy. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, prepare for us there. And here's the point, 16. The disciples went out, came to the city, found it just as he had told them, and they prepared for the Passover. And so this puts us in the similar position as the, remember before the triumphal entry, Jesus said, go, there'll be a, a foal of a donkey there. Say to them, the, the the master has need of this and that whole deal. And we talked about how there's different people see that different. Either Jesus' influence was, was so big at that point, like he had people in different places with a degree of loyalty that all they had to hear was that Jesus said so and they, they'd let him, have you, let him have your donkey or give him your nicely furnished upper room, which would have actually been a big deal in Jerusalem at that time. I don't have time to get into it, but that, it wouldn't have been like there'd be a bunch of these available. So it'd be a big deal for him to give them this to use, okay? So is it that, or is there, is there some supernatural kind of prophetic thing happening in the way that Jesus calls this out? Is it prearranged stuff, or is it supernatural? We're, we're not totally sure. Um, I, <clears throat> I, I tend to probably think it's, it's supernatural in nature, but that isn't something we're going to hang a hat on one way or the other, okay? What is the point of 12 through 16, okay? This, that Jesus calls out these specific details, and then it goes exactly, that's, that's why verse 16 is so fun. He says all this stuff that's going to happen, exactly how to lay it out, and then verse 16, it happened exactly like that. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that there is no one, and there is nothing on this planet that can derail the plans and purposes of God. Nothing. Down to little details, man. He's got it. I hope, are you encouraged by that? Think about your life right now and what you're tempted to be vexed by right now. Think about all the little details that were orchestrated here. All the way back from the Exodus. And, and, and the history doesn't start at the Exodus. That was a big deal, and that's part of why there was this unleavened bread and Exodus or, uh, and Passover festival. But that's not where the history started. There was a lot more details back through Joseph, right? And Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. All the way back. Noah. God's been doing something. Dealing in little details. And, and he still is. That's what I'm saying. There are some that make this distinction between like what we see in the scriptures in terms of God's plan of redemption and then what we're doing today. And, and, and do I think... Do I think I should consider myself on par with, with Moses or some of the apostles? No, but I also don't, I don't buy wholesale this idea that what we're doing today, participating in the redemptive plan of God, is less important than some of what we read in the scriptures. What, I don't know where we got that idea. <laughs> I, I think the fact that whether or not you're obedient, whether or not we do our part, this thing is still going, the story's still going, Right? There's all of this run-up, all of what we're talking about was to get us to here, where we have a church, a people of God, the body of Christ, indwelt with the Spirit of God, able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Like that's what we that's what we were doing here, was getting to here. So let's not downplay the importance of us living 
in the way that Mary lived, sold out, passionate, zealous for the things of God, about his name and about his fame and his story and his gospel going forward. It matters whether or not you spend the next 10 years of your life all wrapped up in your own stuff or whether you spend the next 10 years of your life involved intricately in the details of what God is doing now to further his kingdom and to bring the good news of his gospel to people. I don't don't think it's helpful to downplay what it, the, the fact that we're, God's redemptive plan is still unfolding today, right? And I'm so thankful because that means I got swept up in it. Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus. I'm so thankful I'm in this thing to the glory of God. Verses 17 through 26. This is what we would commonly refer to as, as the Last Supper. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. They were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and say to him, one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. In, in this time, I, mean, I, I think... I think it's fairly true today, but especially then, for Judas to eat this meal with Jesus, to dip in the same bowl as him, and then to go do what he did, it, it, it's like the worst kind of treasonous thing you can think of. I mean, I think we get that. If I invite you over to my house and feed you, and then you, you know, light my front yard on fire on the way out, like, that's not cool. You know what I mean? We just ate dinner together. I fed you. If you're going to light my yard on fire, you know, do it another day at least, you punk. So, but that's, that's, so we just need to understand the insult here and how hard Judas's heart had gotten to be able to do this, right? Um, along that line, between 17 and 18, verses 17 and 18, in that time period, uh, the book of John tells us that was the washing of the disciples' feet at this same event, so that was happening too. As, as, as much as Jesus dipping in the bowl together and the trust that that should have communicated, at the same, the same time, Jesus was washing their feet. And Judas was still able to go and do what he did. And, and I think what's important for us to do here today is not just improve our understanding of how much a scoundrel Judas was, but to judge ourselves about our own tendency for betrayal in this way. For us to have tasted and seen perhaps the fullness of God's gospel in Christ and yet be lackadaisical in our approach to him. Or to taste and see that the Lord is good and and then think somehow it's okay for us to just live life on our own terms for our priorities and our purposes. That is also gross much the way Judas's betrayal was gross. We can't let ourselves be lulled into a sense of, of that being okay. It's just not. Amen. Again, this is not the condemnation. But let's make sure we don't leave here going, boy, Judas was a scoundrel. 
Make sure we leave here saying, man, I have the potential to be a scoundrel. Jesus, help me. Jesus, bring more people into my life that can, that can help me stay out of this. Jesus, soak my heart in gospel love to make it harder for me to ever get to here. Twenty-two through twenty-six. It talks about a, a few things here, um, and this. I want you to know that this serves in some ways as a model for our worship. And I'm wrapping up for those of you that uh, might be concerned. <laughs> Hopefully, with the content of this sermon, you're not worried about lunch at this moment. But if that's you, I'm almost done. Okay, um, and I would say go back and check out the audio again and <laughs> work through this just one more time. Amen. Verses 22 through 26 serves as as a model in some ways for our worship. Um, We don't see it as much in the book of Mark, but John records during this time with the foot washing, uh, the eating of the meal, there's a bunch of, there's more teaching that Jesus does. And if you're interested in that, go check out John's account of this later. It's it's nice and helpful to kind of harmonize these things. Um, So there was teaching. Jesus took this opportunity with this last meal with his guys to teach. That was an important element of what they were going to do as he had this you know, last kind of sit-down gathering with them. And so that's, that's part of why, along with the scriptures that explicitly tell us to do so, the teaching of God's word is a big element of what happens when we gather together as God's people. We see also that they sang, okay? They sang a hymn at the end of this whole uh, encounter with the, with the Last Supper. And so that, that, along with other places in the scriptures that tell us that's something we should do as God's people, that's part of why singing is an important element of what we do when we gather as God's people. The last thing we see is that this, this that started out as a Passover meal, a celebration of this past victory of God and bringing his people out of Egypt, that Jesus took that and now he transformed it and, and changed the meaning of it. And what we have here is the first communion. And that's the fact that that's a big part of what Jesus did with one of the last times he had with his guys together, with his followers together. That's part of why, along with other scriptures that tell us that we should do it often, communion is a part of each time we gather as God's people. And for us, some of you may have come from traditions, I know I did, where maybe there was an altar call was was something that was... um, it was common to happen maybe towards the end of the service, and that would be a chance for response. And I'm not, I have nothing to say about that as a practice. I just want you to know for us, communion serves as that time of response. That's why at the end of every service, we're going to have those of you who are believers in Christ hold these elements that Jesus says, used that, un- that unleavened bread used to represent what happened in Exodus, but now he's saying it represents my body. That wine used to represent the blood over the doorpost during the Exodus, but now I'm telling you it's representing my blood that's going to be poured out for you. And that's why we're, we have you hold those every single time. With the, here's our expectation. Here is our belief. Here's where our faith is at, is that every single time we gather together like this, every single time we get in a room and the word of God is opened, regardless of the frailty of who, of who might be teaching it, that the word of God is opened and read and taught, that the spirit of God in that process is doing things in the hearts of people. The assumption is not that each week, if I was to say, hey, if you feel like you should, raise your hand and respond somehow to what God has said through his word today. The reason we, we assume everybody needs to respond to what the word of God has done in their hearts that day. 
which is why we're going to bring you to this point of reckoning, the table of the Lord each week. And we're going to have you hold those elements. And hopefully, you will not be able to brush past that. And, and I know that we have this problem as humans that anything that comes close to becoming tradition, we, in, we, we begin to treat it like a common thing. Friends, let this text today, let us rehearsing all that was going into this and all that it means, let it renew in us a commitment to never let the passion and zeal that we have for Christ and what happens when we come to the table of communion become a common thing to us. Just because we do it every week doesn't mean it's a common thing. It's a precious thing. It's a beautiful thing. And we have to treat it as such. But, and we may have to war for that because of our human tendency for, for getting stuck into ruts and rhythms. But let's not, let it, let's not let that happen. Not here. Not among us. Amen? Amen. The importance of this meal cannot be overstated. This was the inauguration of a new covenant and a new meal with a new meaning. These were two important dinners. <laughs> As I said before, that, that, that meal would have had unleavened bread r r reminding them had they had to rush out of Egypt. It would have had bitter herbs reminding them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. Uh, there would have been a lamb and there would have been wine. And I want to call your attention this is it. I'm done, I promise, okay? <laughs> I just want to call your attention to this reality, that when Jesus, when there was this inauguration happening of a new covenant, when this meal, when he took those elements and gave them new meaning, you'll notice the key feature of a Passover uh, meal was this lamb that had to be sacrificed at the temple by very strict standards and then eaten within the boundaries of Jerusalem by law. That was part of how you, or that's how you celebrated through that sacrificed lamb, the Passover. And remember what God did in that time. I think, I just find it very interesting here, as Jesus takes that tradition and gives it this new meaning and makes it a new meal, you see no mention here in Mark 14 of a lamb on the table. Why? Because there was a different lamb there and his name was Jesus. Come on, man. That's what I'm trying to tell you about. I'm talking about all these details, everything that had to come together, all that had to happen for all of it to come right down to this finite point where what God said would happen happened when God said it would happen, and it was all for the good and the salvation of anybody that would come in Christ to Christ by faith. It's not a common thing. It's worth being zealous and passionate about. And so look, can we shake off any religious dust that maybe has settled on us and act like this is exciting? Amen. And I don't just mean in here. I do mean in here, but I don't just mean in here. I mean out there too. I mean when, when people observe us as followers of Christ. It doesn't mean we don't suffer. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. It doesn't mean we don't have down emotional days. Yes, all of that is true. We're promised in the scriptures that we're going to have those things. But what we're also promised is we have the very presence of Christ with us. We have the very presence of Christ in us. And that means we can go out in this world with a confidence, with a hope-filled joy. And we can invite others to come and to partake in this meal. Amen. The gospel's our hope. We're called to share it with zeal. And it is exciting. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for these verses. God, thank you for Mary of Bethany. 
Thank you. Lord, we want to honor her. You said we should. We want to honor her today. You said her story and her fame would be spread wherever the gospel was preached for all of time. And so we're going to do it today. Thank you that Mary of Bethany got it, that she saw your great worth and value, that she was not afraid with extravagance to come and display with passion her worship for you. We don't know if she knew that ridicule was probably coming, but she clearly did not care. And God, we're asking for some of that Mary of Bethany anointing to get on us, to disregard our own harsh ideas about these things, to disregard how others may deal with us if we seem a little out of control or a little overly passionate or zealous, or it seems like we make sacrifices for the sake of your kingdom that others would call foolish. God, may we disregard all of that and may we worship you with an extravagant, passionate fervor that is appropriate. Because Lord, what it sounds like you were saying here is that nothing less than the way Mary came at it was appropriate. That the way everyone else in the room approached the thing was dead wrong. And that Mary was right. And so, Lord, please help us see what that means. Help us that your word today, that this meal, these meals today, that we would be able to look to them as a mirror. And we would be able to humbly assess ourselves. Not to condemnation. God, I pray right now that in the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would, you would totally and completely uh, keep everybody that hears this safe from the trap of condemnation. You said there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, protect your people from that attack from the enemy. But, Lord, if there are those within the sound of my voice that have not yet glimpsed at all your beauty, they have not yet tasted and seen how good you are, Lord, for them, I ask that the conviction of your spirit would sit upon them. I ask, Lord, that they would realize their great need for you. And I ask that they would come to you humbly. I thank you for the truth that there will, there will be nobody in hell. There will be nobody that is able to say, I came to Jesus and he rejected me. I thank you, Lord, that you have promised that we will come to you in faith and we will humbly declare our need for you, that you'll receive us, you'll save us, you'll help us, and you'll let us eat at your table. Thank you for letting us eat at your table. May we never treat it as if it's a common thing. We love you, Master. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org